I would like you, if you would, to turn to 1 Corinthians 16. No, not Mark. 1 Corinthians 16. I am going to be taking a break today from the gospel according to Mark. And I am going to be, and I will do this periodically. When I preach through a sermon series that is a little bit uh, lengthy, then I'm going to be taking breaks, and I want to be able to touch on certain things that I believe, as a body, we need to hear. And today's going to be no different. I'm going to touch on something, actually, that for the last several months, several months, has been weighing on my heart, and I've been wondering, Lord, when are you going to want me to preach this? And um, I'm going to be sharing with you as far as what that topic is. It is a big topic. It is a controversial topic, but we need to navigate through any controversial and difficult topics in our day in order to discern the truth to be able to follow Jesus. Amen? And so that's what we're going to try and do today. Um, I'm going to scratch the surface with this sermon. Uh, I am probably going to stir up more questions than answer questions. Uh, hopefully, some of our questions will be answered. My goal is to point us to Scripture, and then we build from there. Now, to do this, I'm going to start off by sharing a story, probably two, um, with regard to our reaction to creatures in our home. And give me just a minute, and you'll see where I'm going to go with this. I remember a day in which I was doing paint touch-up at a dealership, and I got a call, a very urgent call from my wife. She was in tears. And I'm just wondering, oh my goodness, something tragic has happened. And, and my heart is starting the race. And I said, sweetie, sweetie, calm down, hon. What, what's wrong? Just, just tell me what is wrong. And she says, Michael, you're not going to believe this. And I'm waiting for the worst story ever. And I'm, she says, a lizard got in our, into the kitchen. And I tried, I tried to trap him, and he ran into the sink and then into the garbage disposal. And without thinking, I flipped the on switch. And she is crying, and I'm on the other phone, and I am laughing. And I am saying, you go, girl, all right, you did it. But she continues to cry. And I'm thinking, I probably didn't respond the way she needed me to. So I backed up a little bit, tried to extend a little bit of compassion, though I couldn't help but laughing here and there. And I tried to console her. You know what, sweetheart? Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. I, this, is, this is hard, I know. You ended up killing a lizard, and that, that's going to be hard, and I'm so sorry. And I did my best to recover. There's another creature that came into our house, actually, just this past week. It is not common to see these, just so you know. But I, am, I sit down early in the morning in the green recliner. I pull out my Bible, and I have a time in the Word and in prayer. And I, I guess I'm praying before I'm reading the Bible, and I look up, and I see under one of our chairs a roach scurrying across the baseboard. I immediately have two emotional reactions. The first reaction is one of utter disgust. The second one is anger. How dare a roach encroach upon my, my property, roach encroachment, right? On my property, come into my house and defile my home. I would, and I, I got up and, and I was angry and I just, okay, now what am I gonna do? And what I decided to do was I pulled out the chair. You know, you got to do this very, you know, um, slowly so you don't scare the poor fella. And then I smashed him up against the wall. Now, if you were running across the carpet, I'm not so sure I would want the guts in my carpet. But I took care of business. And just so you know, I did wash my, I think I did. I did wash my hand. <laughs> And I want to ask you, I want to ask you, what is the difference between these two? Because there is a difference. 
Now, before I answer that, I do recall a time when I was in Phoenix, Arizona, I was selling pest control. I did pretty well. Although I'm not a salesman, I did pretty well. I was so kind of surprised. I remember knocking on one door, and the lady opened the door, and I'm, I'm just saying, you know, I noticed this, that, and the other, and it looks as if you may have some bugs, and I, I want you to know I'm here with the pest control service, and I'm here to rescue your home, okay? It didn't word it quite that way, but uh, I could tell she had some black widows. Black widows are big over in Phoenix, Arizona, and some crickets and such. There's telltale signs of this. And then I, I, she, I said, do you, have any, uh, do you have any other issues? She said, uh, yeah, we have uh, cockroach problems. I said, really? Okay. Well, when you go down in the morning or at night when it's dark outside and you turn the kitchen light on, how many roaches do you see? Like two or three or so? She said, oh no, at least a dozen. Now there's a way to deal with this and that is turn and run. But I chose not to do that. <laughs> for fear she would stick those roaches on me, right? No. And so I said, okay, now here's the process. We're going to have to bomb your house, preferably with C4, but we'll try, to, we'll try to use something a little less dangerous. No, so there's a way to handle this. So the technician goes in there, and you know he's doing his little thing and, and such, and this is the first service, okay? And he's setting the bombs, and he's trying to find the nest, and there is a ventilation thingy in the and you undo the undo it and you let it down and when he let it down he got a shower <laughs> and it was not of water and it freaked him out as he's brushing them off he discovered the nest and i guess it's warm humid and such and that's where they chose to take up residence now I think he recovered. I feel a little guilty because I was the one that sold the service and led him there. Uh, we probably lost money on that particular home, <laughs> be my guess. But there's a difference between lizards and roaches. And as a man, let me just say, uh, with the first lizard experience, I learned how to do a, deal a little better with lizards and roaches. Now, what is the difference? Both of them are creatures that, even the Old Testament talks about lizards getting into king's palaces, so okay. It's not because we have an unclean home, but a lizard does not do anybody harm. Now, it can freak my girls out. I understand that. But I need to get rid of the lizard. So I try to catch them with my hand and then throw them as far away out the door as I can and that's how I get rid of them. I don't smash them like I do roaches. I don't have a problem smashing roaches. Now, you may take offense with that. Forgive me if you do, but roaches are harmful. I realize that in some cultures, they eat roaches as a delicacy. Let me just say this, and you can catch them on YouTube, but the truth is they are farm-fed. Yes, they, they, they use cardboard boxes. They don't use garbage. Uh, I seriously doubt they carry diseases, but they roast them and eat them. So, however, roaches that come into my home, I am sure have been where I don't want them, garbage and all, bringing disease into my home, and so I will have no problem killing them. Now, I personally, so you know, I want, my goal is to train my son to be a roach killer, but a lizard catcher by the time he gets married. I think I've succeeded. If my daughters manage to catch this, I, that's totally fine with me. But why do I want to see this? Because I want my son to learn how to be the protector of his home. What I want to talk about today is something called toxic masculinity. People define it slightly differently, and we need to get at those nuances. People dis determine the cause of it very differently. The world determines its cause very differently than I do, and probably very differently than most, if not all of you. This is quite controversial, I realize, but as a church, we need to wade through this. You see, it's okay for my son, when he gets married, to feel disgust and maybe even afraid of a roach. Eventually, that fear will, will wear out, trust me. I can remember when a, when a roach, I was taken aback and I was just, okay, Mike, you're frozen. Uh, 
kill the thing. Just, just, just kill it. Now, see, up north, you don't have too many of those. They're just the short, short German roaches that you come across. But down here, you know, they're the type that you can saddle and ride. They're a little bigger. And so, consequently, I don't want those in my house. But it's okay if my son feels disgust and fear. I need my son to overcome that fear and to be able to kill it. And if my daughters can do that as well, great. But for my son, he is called to be the protector of his home. Is this biblical? Is masculinity even biblical? Now, what I don't want to see my son do is reach for his revolver and shoot the thing. That's excessive. That would probably be toxic masculinity. <laughs> Why would a guy do that? Why would he reach for his revolver? Probably to demonstrate his masculinity. And then, of course, tell the story at the office. Now, can I say, concerning toxic masculinity, we are all guilty of promoting this at some point, at some level. We are all guilty. If you are not, great, I'd love to know your secret, but it is easy to get caught up in a cultural milieu of this and breed it. Raising our sons, it is easy to cross that line, and we need to, dif- to discern at least about where is that line. It breeds tox- the <coughs> toxic masculinity, breeds insecurities, and f- this sense of false masculinity. It will unnecessarily offend those we are trying to reach with the gospel. This really is a lot deeper than I think we're aware of in our culture and in the church. Now, here's a caution. I will try to root a running definition of masculinity in the word. That's going to be important. I'm going to put a diagram up here at some point to be able to help us understand the mix of what the Bible has to say and what culture determines and how do we sort through it. You may end up, because culture is a part of this, you may end up disagreeing with some of my conclusions. I'm not going to be offended by that. But here is what I would ask you, because I will be giving examples at the end. For the gospel's sake and the sake of unity in the body of Christ, that we not offend one another, that you please at least take heed to what I'm going to say. Masculinity is a biblical concept. We live in a day in which people, especially to the far left, believe that the problem of masculinity is tied to the whole concept of masculinity itself. There is this desire to erase this concept of masculine and feminine. But to do so, you're going to have to white out numerous passages in the scriptures. Numerous passages. I'm only going to touch on a few. I hope I have the time to do at least an adequate job because I do want to get to the application. So bear with me as we go through this. If the sermon is a little bit longer, I will do my best to keep it within a proper time frame. But I need us to dig in, okay? I need us to find our local vertical. Some years ago, they did a test to determine <coughs> excuse me, what, uh, what would happen if people were in a, uh, an enclosed living, like a spaceship, in which there was no gravity. There was no up and down. Your only reference to up and down <coughs> was with regard to the ship itself, maybe the sun, but the sun would rise and set 16 times during the day. The, the idea was to bring about complete disorientation. You know, when you would put toothpaste on your toothbrush, the toothpaste wouldn't fall down, it would float. To grab your razor, you would, have, you would open your bag and have to pluck it out of the air. This created a lot of confusion with the people, <clears throat> and it disoriented themselves. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm sharing this with you because we live in a day in which our culture, for the most part, has lost its local vertical. We don't know up and down. We don't know absolute truth. We don't, when we look at masculine and feminine, we feel like it's a coin toss. Gender roles, a coin toss. Sexual orientation, a coin toss. Church, I need to tell you that that is not true according to God's word. Now, there is so much more that we could look at that I don't have time to, 
but we need to find our local vertical, and then we need to see, as I'm going to diagram it, how culture plays into that, and then in both a positive and negative way, and then we need to get at some personal application for the sake of the body of Christ and the mission that we are on in calling the lost to Jesus, because toxic masculinity will offend anyone, except those who have it, of course. So 1 Corinthians 16, we're going to just read two verses here, verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> we're going to see five commands by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, men and women. Listen to this. It says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. Did you catch all five of those? What you're going to find is that the, the middle one, the third one, is actually one Greek word, and it literally translated means be men. Be men. Now, I find that personally curious. This is a word that is steeped in Greek culture that is obviously an idiom because he's not telling the women of Corinth to be men. He is lighting on a principle here that he has, that apparently the Greeks in the development of their language actually got it right. Otherwise, Paul would not have used the word because it would be offensive. Now, do you follow me? What is this idiom then? I think the NIV does a decent job. Be men of courage. There is something about men that even the pagan Greeks got right. They are courageous. They are cockroach killers, if you will. They don't use the revolver, okay? But they, they will destroy. If you come into my home uninvited and you are a danger to my family, I will protect them. God bless you, all right? And so there is this sense of courage even within the pagan Greek culture. They got it. For some reason, and I wouldn't necessarily call our culture pagan, but we are missing this in our culture. Because, because for the last several, however many decades, there has been this strong feminist movement that is actually offended by this concept of masculinity. And I think what has happened is that they have come upon this concept of uh, this, these behaviors that we would call toxic masculinity, and they would say the problem is not what we're going to share today, but the problem is masculinity itself. Excuse me for being so bold, but they are absolutely wrong. 1 Corinthians 16. Actually, I believe all five of these are rooted in a concept of masculinity. I don't have time to get into that. That would probably take another 20 to 30 minutes. Very interesting, though, if you do a personal study on those two verses, those five commands. The second thing that I want us to look at is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, turn there if you would, in 1 Thessalonians Helps if I could get there quickly. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians, and he uses two metaphors. The first one is found in verses 7 and 8. Do you see it there? Let me read it to you. It says, but we, as, a, as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. The Greek word there is a nursing mother, Okay like a nursing mother caring for her little children. So how is it, what is that metaphor supposed to stir up in our mind that Paul in no way finds offensive? It is this concept of a caring mother. We were caring for you. He goes on in verse eight. He says, we loved you like a nursing mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. Caring. Then he goes on and he uses a different metaphor just a few verses later. Look with me now, if you would, at verses 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father. Okay, we have a nursing mother. Now he's going to bring in the metaphor of a father. What does he say about a father? Because apparently, however he defines it, whatever qualities he pulls out, he is not offended by it, neither is God, because there's something in the created order 
that Paul is lighting on here. We know that we dealt, you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you. And that last word, urge, has this sense of confrontation to it. Urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So there is this concept of gentleness, but firmness. Now, he also uses the word comfort. Toxic masculinity lands on this idea of being firm, but tosses out the idea of compassion. That's not masculinity. Masculinity is this balance, gentle, caring, devoting yourself as the nursing mother and yet on the father, balancing the compassion and the firmness and the not being afraid to challenge, graciously challenge, speaking the truth in love, calling people, that is the Thessalonians, to pursue Christ, to come out of the darkness, die to the flesh, pursue Jesus, and not afraid to call them to this. And so he uses the nursing mother and the father metaphor. There is what I, my point is that there is something in the created order that Paul is tapping into that they all understand, even though they're fresh out of the world. Even they get it. Even the pagan culture, they gets it. We in America are a little slow on this, I guess. Galatians 3, 28. The response to what I'm sharing with you right now, and again, there's so many more verses. Forgive me if I don't go through a dozen of them. I just don't have time. I'm just sharing a few with you right now. But the response of many in the church is what some people call an egalitarian view. That is, in the home, there is equal authority. Why? Because men and women in the redeemed order, that is, not um, following in our sinful fleshly ways in which t men will dominate, but now we share equal authority. That's called the egalitarian view. I don't hold that view. I hold a view that's called the complementarian view. This verse is used to try and erase this idea of masculine feminine. Within the church, there are people who want to do this. They believe that it is completely cultural, that is culturally defined, unnecessary, and in God's redemptive order, let's get rid of these. And we are trying to produce a unisex concept here. Scripture, this scripture cannot be used to, to do this. It says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me continue. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the seed. Verse 26 says, you're all sons of God. Is he trying to say that we get rid of this concept of male and female? Good luck in procreating if that's the, if that's the case. If that is the case, then we should also get rid of any cultural distinctions between Jew and Gentile. And that is not what scripture teaches. We can see God desiring to keep an ethnos, a culture, an ethnic culture, and actually those ethnic, thank you, by the way, Donald, God is wanting to preserve this. When we get to heaven, we are going to see ethnic cultures and their differences. This will be their glory and their majesty that they bring with them into heaven. I'm going to bring my American culture, minus its fallenness, into heaven with me. And, and God, God delights in this diversity. He is not trying to say, get rid of the cultural distinctions, distinctives between Jew and Greek. He's not saying that. Neither is he saying that slaves, you should just throw off the, your, your master's authority because many of them were slaves because they were indebted, not because someone went to Africa and, and, and kidnapped them and brought them. That's the type of slavery we experienced. I'm not going to say that wasn't at all a part of their slavery in this time, but slavery during Paul's time was vastly different than the type of slavery America experienced. Paul is not saying that you should flee, that you should run away, that you should find your freedom. He's not erasing the slave, the free distinctives. He'd be upending culture, economics, in his day, if that were the case. 
Instead, what we find is that Paul is actually saying that in the kingdom of God, we all have equal access to the throne of God. No one is more privileged than another. He is not saying throw out the distinctives, throw out the roles of male-female. He is not saying that. We need to preserve these. And so I disagree with my brothers and sisters who would say, let's get rid of the distinctives. Let's get rid of this concept of the man being the head of the home. We need to change that. And, and it's my personal opinion, it's horrible what they begin to do with Scripture in order to accomplish that. Ephesians 5.23, turn there with me. Ephesians 5.23, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church's body of which he is the Savior. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, let me just say this, and again, so much more time could be and perhaps even should be given to this, but due to time, I can't. This concept of headship in the home is, has to do with authority because the wife is now called to submit just as the church submits to Christ. Why? Because he's the head. Do you hear the sense of authority there? God didn't call the wife to be the head of the home, even though she may be smarter, even though she may be more loving, even though she may know more of the word, even though she may be better at finances and balancing the checkbook. But God has, for some reason in his divine infinite intelligence and love, he has called the man to be the head in the home. And so men, our challenge then is, I need to become that head in a way that reflects Christ's headship of the church. And men, I hope that we are challenged by this and don't try and figure out some spiritual gymnastics to maneuver and get around this concept of headship in the home. Bear the full brunt of that responsibility, men. Be the head in your home. Lead with authority, but lead with grace. Listen to your wife. He gave her to you for a very, re very good reason. I had to, I struggled with this myself and my wife, and we're just trying, we were trying to understand. There's a ton of humorous stories that I don't have time to get into, but I, I just thought, wow, I, 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 lo I had lost or didn't have a local vertical concerning headship in the home. And I had to learn from other men. I had to read the word and understand there is a balance. There is a loving, truly loving, gracious way to lead rather than demanding your wife to follow. Men, do you hear me? Headship in the home. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It, I'm not going to read it, but simply it says this. Men, live with consideration with your wife as heirs of the grace of life, as she's the weaker vessel. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls the wife the weaker vessel. That does not mean she's less intelligent. There's too many examples to the contrary of that. And it might even begin with my own home. Does not mean that she is uh, a, a frail little thing that can't take care of herself. Proverbs 31 says her arms are strong for her tasks. All right? As a young man, I regularly reminded my wife that strong for your tasks. You can do this. Uh, but, you know, I had, okay, sometimes things were heavy and I'm going to carry it for you. Okay. But you know what? It, she's the weaker vessel. Now, that could, that's going to appear, I believe, not just in the physical realm, but in the emotional realm. But again, not always. There are some women, many women, who are more emotional, and we may have to define what that even means, uh, than their husbands. But there are in some homes, the husband is more emotional than the wife. There is something at, in this X, X and XY chromosome combination that has created this. It's genetic. It's part of our makeup. It's attached to our emotions. But I would never say that all women are more emotional than all men. That's not the truth. Neither would I say that all men are stronger than all women or that all husbands are stronger than all wives. Okay? And so I want to be careful there. But generally speaking, 
That is what the XX chromosome and the XY chromosome have done. This is genetically based. It's biological. Let me just say this. Number one, in the Old Testament, it was the men who were called to arms to protect and defend. It was the men. Number two, in 2 Thessalonians 3.6, it is the men who are charged to work hard to provide. I see the men's calling as both the protector and the provider. Now, it's not that women can't do these things. If I'm not home, my wife may have to be the one to kill the roach. And I'm sure she would not want to do that. But so that the roach doesn't crawl on the baby, she may have to begin to pray in the Spirit and allow the Spirit of God to empower her and give her boldness and crush that thing. Just as long as it's not in the carpet, right, sweetheart? And that's right. Uh, that's what she did that one time. She put a cup over it. That roach was trapped for hours and hours until I got home. I'm not sure if I just stepped on the, the cup itself or I picked it up. I can't remember, but that roach didn't see the light of day. Men were called to be protectors and providers. These, we, we, we have masculine traits that now determine our masculine calling, our masculine roles, protector, provider. Scripture recognizes these differences and does not seek to overcome them or erase them in redemption, as many in our culture seek to do. Instead, it seeks to reaffirm the masculine-feminine distinctions. Now, I am going to go through this so quickly, forgive me, my class, uh, How to Study the Bible, went through this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We went through verses 3 all the way through 16. I'm going to touch on something here that is incredibly controversial in our day and especially in, in America. It says this. I'm going to start with verse 14. So 14 through 16, 1 Corinthians 11. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. Now, I don't know what your version says right there. The Greek word says such. I'm going to come back to that word in just a moment. No such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let me just say this that this word nature is the Greek word phusis. We get the word physical. We get the word physics from it. In Greek, it means that which was innate. It was generally used to contrast with education, society's cultural or socialization. That's the word I'm looking for. That is things that you learn as a part of your culture. <clears throat> And so when he says that nature tells us this, he is saying there is something inbred in who we are innately, not in culture, that says men should have short hair and women should have long hair. And that if a man has short hair, it is actually a disgrace to him or a dishonor to him. That Greek word that's, that's used there, at least in the Bible, is never used to refer to cultural elements, but rather commands of God. Just for your 411. The problem, though, in our, and, and women have long hair for their glory. Can I say this? That the main reason why many in our day look at this passage and they say, well, that's just cultural. You know, it's okay for men to have long hair. Just in Paul's day, it was cultural. So, hey, you know what? Just don't do it. Um, no. The reason why they say this is this word, in verse 16, in my translation, it says practice. In some other translations, it's the word custom. It is used for cultural dictates, norms, if you will, and for biblical principles, practices, things that we do. The Lord's Supper is a practice. Baptism is a practice. See, those are commands of God. But then, 
The traditions of the elders are also customs, and they are not biblical commands. So I'm saying this word can be either one. The problem, though, is what custom or what practice is he talking about? Many versions, apparently, such as the NIV, and maybe they try to straddle the issue here, and I'll I'll give them that. Maybe they are, because they use the word practice, not custom. Let me just say this. The Greek says we have no such practice or no such custom. This word is never translated other. It's never translated other. It is always translated with the word such. Okay, the question then is, what such practice is he talking about? Don't be so quick to assume that he's talking about the practice of wearing a head covering or long hair, short hair. I assure you that I don't believe that is what he is talking about. The practice, let let me just read this to you one more time. Verse 16, he says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we don't have such a practice. Neither do any of the churches. The practice is being contentious. You want to be contentious? We don't practice that. Not about this issue. Not about the commands of God. Not about that which is inbred in us in nature. We We don't contend about that because that's the way, that's God's created order. If you want to be contentious, we don't have such a practice. Now, do you see that? Many, however, believe that this, because it's translated in many versions, other practice, that other practice is long hair, short hair. Now, I'm only bringing this up, and I realize that because of what I've just shared with you, this is controversial. But according to the scripture, women are to have long hair. Men are to have short hair. That is dictated to us by nature and not my culture. Can we concede this, though? How long is long hair? How short is short hair? So here's what you will find. Within cultures, especially like in Africa, the women still have longer hair than men, but their hair would be many times, not always, many times considerably shorter than the hair that a woman would wear in America. My point is that Paul is landing upon a distinctive within the male-female created order. Now, we might just kind of run roughshod over this, but my point is this. God wants to preserve this. Men don't wear long hair and try and look like a woman in this way, that is a disgrace to you. Most most people, even Christians in our culture, would not see that because over the last several decades, we've been conditioned otherwise. Let me just show you one other. Again, there would be many, but let me just show you one other in which God wants to preserve these distinctives. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 22. I'm going to read it quickly here because I realize I am running out of time. 22, verse 5, a woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. I want you to feel the gravity of that. Some would say, Pastor Mike, that's Old Testament. So are the Ten Commandments, by the way. The important question is not whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, but did Christ fulfill this? Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law. He did not fulfill the moral law like he fulfilled the ceremonial law. He fulfilled the moral law by keeping it. That, so he was perfect. And that way, he, he, he fulfilled the moral law, and he, but he still calls us to walk in that moral law. By fulfilling it, he didn't throw it away. With the ceremonial law, see, this is different. With the ceremonial law, those ceremonies were pictures of Christ that are now fulfilled in him. He is now the body, Colossians 2.16 says, and those, uh, th- those ceremonies are the shadow. You can read about this in, in Colossians 2.16 and Hebrews 10.1. Calls these ceremonies, like new moon celebration, religious festivals, cel- the Sabbath, they are shadows. They're simply pictures of what Christ and his church would be. Okay? As we look through this, oh my, okay. We need to ask the question, is this part of the ceremonial law or not? Can I direct your attention to a a passage just a few verses later that is? So you get a feel for this. Verse 9, 
Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. There is ceremonial defilement, and there is moral defilement. And we could actually look at cross-references to this, and we would discover this is ceremonial defilement. It's not moral defilement. You can plant two seeds t- today because they are, it is, the picture of purity has been fulfilled in Christ. Now, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going very quickly through this. We do not find this concept of ceremonial defilement in the verse that I read in verse 5. This is how we sort that when you go through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we bring this principle. Did Christ fulfill this or did he not? Just because it's in the Old Testament, we don't throw it out. Did Christ fulfill it? Was it ceremonial? If we discover that it is, that it's ceremony, brings ceremonial defilement, or it's, it's a ceremony like a Sabbath or a religious festival, that's fulfilled in Christ. Now, my point then is this. Men, you do not dress like a woman. Women don't try to dress like men. Here's our problem. Clothing is determined by our culture. God knows this. Moses knew this. As we now bring it into our culture, we have to look around and we have to say, how do women generally dress? How do men generally dress? And I want to preserve this sense of manhood, and so I am not going to present myself as a woman in how I dress. That's what his point is. Women, you do not want to be able to dress like a man so that you present some unisex concept in our culture. That is not what God has called us to do. It's not what God has called you to do. So my point then is very simply this, that God sees the masculine feminine, he sees the male-female distinctives, and he desires to preserve them. But some of them will be, to a degree, culturally determined. And that's okay. The question, though, is within our culture, our culture does not always define masculine and feminine very well. So I'm going to diagram this for you right now. And I I hope I have done a good enough job explaining it so that you'll understand understand this. I'm going to focus on biblical masculinity right now since the topic today I've entitled it um, Cockroach Killers, but the truth is we're talking about uh, toxic masculinity. So I want, here's biblical masculinity. Forgive my abbreviations. Our culture, this is what I'm going to call proper cultural, I'm going to abbreviate that. Uh, The word I have here is, there we go, application. But then we have here improper cultural application. We start with the biblical concept of masculinity. It's okay for our culture, just like it does with manners. When I sit at the dinner table and I'm an invited guest, I am not going to burp out loud. Just so you know that, guys, that's actually not having very good manners. When In, in scripture, it says, greet one another with a kiss of love. All right? It, If I did that in my culture and kissed someone, I would probably offend them and therefore break the very principle that that scripture teaches, to do it with love. Greet one another with love. And in the context, it's a kiss because that's cultural. But in my context, kissing is not proper. I am not going to go into a business meeting and kiss the guy. Okay, I'm not going to do that. I will shake his hand, though. I may even use two hands. That's a little bit more. If I hug him, it might not be quite appropriate for the business connection that I'm trying to make there. But if if you come into my church um, and I know you, I'm going to hug you. Sorry. But see, in our culture, that's fine. So culture, to some degree, does express or help us walk out the proper cultural application. Clothing, that's going to be cultural. So do you see, long hair, short hair? Well, how long, how short? Scripture doesn't tell us, it's subjective. And so you look around at your culture because as a man in my culture, I want to present myself as a a man. A woman, she wants to present herself as a woman in her culture. 
The problem, though, is this right here, improper cultural application. And that's where we start getting at toxic masculinity, okay? Within toxic masculinity, there is generally four areas of concern. Number one, there is this concept of domination of others. Number two, there is a devaluing of women. Number three, there is a homophobia. And number four, there's a wholesale violence. All four of these, properly understood, fall in this category of improper cultural application. I need to get at this. Two things that I'm gonna, I'm gonna say here. Number one, the problem when we start getting into these four areas, domination of others, devaluing of women, homophobia, and wholesale violence is the fine-tuning and what we actually mean by these things. Because those who are of the, the strong uh, feminist movement, they're going to start defining domination as things like headship in the home. Whoa, wait a second. I'm with you on domination, but the application of headship, I'm going to disagree with you. So what is domination? I think there's a lot that we can agree on, but there are some that I'm going to strongly disagree because they have a false definition of masculinity and femininity as well. Devaluing women. Because, I ask, because Scripture asks my wife to submit to me, and I seek to hear her, she has that right as my wife to give me counsel, Others may say that's, that's devaluing her, and she needs to be equal. Well, I do disagree with that. She is equal or better than me in numbers of areas, but when it comes to leading my home, I need to do it in a biblical fashion as the head. Homophobia. Again, they would define it probably in a slightly different way or maybe a very differently different way than myself. Wholesale violence as well. So we, need, we may need to fine-tune this. We're going to do that in uh, a little bit. But the other problem is when we start talking about a cause. What causes this toxic masculinity? For many, it is just simply the concept of masculinity. The solution is get rid of it. That is not God's solution. So let's, let's wade through these troubled waters. We've got a few minutes left on our hands. I wanted to have more, but let me just say this. Our society, I, I have here in my book, The Making of Real Men, it says, our society has lost its local vertical. Feminist anthropologists express contempt for the genetic disparity between men and women. The Y chromosome is held in disdain, mocked as the main contributor to high crime rates. High crime rates. Maleness is viewed as an undesirable trait. A genetic mutation. I guess apparently we were all XX and we had the mutation of a Y come in there somehow. Not following that quite clearly, but if you listen to you know, well-known anthropologists, many of them start spouting this garbage. Truth has been bent, twisted, and distorted beyond recognition, shaped into what we want it to be. We define it, they demand, not God. Even many who belong to the church, or at least they say they do, Blur the line between men and women, masculine and feminine. They hold in their hand Jack Sparrow's broken moral compass, leading them where their heart desires. I think that I have not erred in how I've said it there. Let's look at this. Let's look at it closely. The culprit is not masculinity. The solution is not erasing it. The culprit is insecurities and the unrestrained sinful desires that are permitted to flow from them. Now, excuse me, I, I am going to need to skip a little bit here. I need to get at this. Okay, let's focus on this right now. I'm going to go through some examples here. What does the dad say? This is an example of toxic masculinity. What does the dad say when his son is accused of bullying in the school? Toxic masculinity's response is, boys will be boys. Wrong answer. Your son is a bully. He's aggressive. Aggressiveness is good. But he likes to dominate people because he's insecure. And truth be told, Dad, he probably learned it from you. Oops, did I cross a line there? Our children learn these things from us, Dads. If your child is a bully, maybe you should be examining your own heart. It came from us because you, for the most part, have been that standard of masculinity. 
sexual harassment. So when someone wrestles with this and who's toxic, who, who wrestles with toxic masculinity, their response is, women should just dress more modestly or they shouldn't flirt. Yeah, let's just cast the blame on them. It's all their fault. Let's throw them under the train, under the bus. It's not my fault. I'm a guy who's sexually oriented and really. No, here's the problem, man. You are insecure and you have fed your flesh probably with pornography and now you sexually harass the women at work hoping to get favors from them. This is despicable. It operates wholesale in politics and in large corporations and I'm sure many other places. But women, listen to this. We are not all like that. Please don't paint us with the same brush. That would be unfair. Okay? That's what the radical feminist movement wants to do. Please don't you do that. There's a lot of good men, and I can point to them here in this room, who do not sexually harass women, who do not turn them into objects, but treat them as real people. Thirdly, the toxic masculine man desires to produce unemotional men. They would respond, to get ahead in this world, we must not show weakness. Apparently, being emotional is weakness. Can I just tell you, if that type of a man that equates being emotional with weakness probably regularly offends his wife, if she hasn't left him yet. The truth is, we need to raise men, boys, who are secure, who know how to understand their emotions. I am surprised when boys have emotions and they don't even know what they are. Okay, this is anger. This is jealousy. This is selfishness. This is fear. And you have to, teenagers, young men who cannot identify the emotion they're experiencing. Where does this come from? It comes from a lack of training. So we need to be very careful when we're dealing, now specifically with our boys, and raising them up to be healthy, emotional men. Let me just say this, however. I'm going to balance this. How many of you in a business meeting, if you would find yourself in a business meeting in a large corporation, and the business leader stands up and he is talking about a business deal, a small business deal that fell through and begins to cry uncontrollably. Is he the type of leader you want to follow? May I suggest he probably would not be. There's something wrong there. He is personally offended and he cries. However, listen to this example. That same man stands up. Not, not the same man, a, a business leader in the same setting stands up. The vice president, whom he was very close to, was in a car accident, was killed, and his wife and five children are left without a husband or father. And as he shares this, he begins to weep. Is he a weak man? He absolutely is not. He is a healthy, emotional leader. I would suggest to you, please don't follow men who try to not cry in those situations. They are not real. They think that emotions are weakness, and they will teach you the same. That's not the type of man I want to follow. I want to follow a man who can be touched. When tragedy strikes, he has no problem crying, weeping. Let me say this again, to bring some balance here. With both my girls and my son, my wife and I allowed them to cry. Depending on the situation, if they continued to cry, and we believed, okay, this has been 30 minutes, or this is 
in excess, whatever that is, this is subjective, we try to help them not cry, help bring them to a point to take their eyes off of themselves or their situation and refocus. Because we know this, that when you begin to engage in excessive crying over, I'll use the cliche, spilled milk, we will, become, we will focus on self-pity. We know this. But if a sibling should pass away, we're going to let them cry as long as they want. Do you see the difference? Toxic masculinity does not see a difference. Toxic masculinity shows up in the church when the men get together and we're sharing our feelings and our struggles and the room is silent. That is a sign of toxic masculinity. Because if I share what a deep need is, that's going to appear as weakness. And men aren't supposed to be weak. Really? Who wrote that? Where did you learn that? But you see... Men are to be strong. At some point, I want my son to step on or with his hand, kill the roach. I want him to do that. But it's okay if my son, while he's doing that, is afraid. It is okay when our young men go to war and they are so afraid, they begin to pee in their pants. I can only imagine that some of them had wet trousers on D, was it D-Day, when they hit Normandy Beach, knowing that they would die. I get that. But he still needs to step out of the boat. Do you get it? And that's hard. I want my son, when someone comes into his home with a gun and he doesn't think he's going to make it, that he is willing to take a bullet for his family so that he can take that man down. It might be a woman. Take her down. Okay. He's willing to lay it down. Why? Because Jesus said to be part of the head of his church, he gave himself up for the church. That's what Ephesians 5 says. That's what I need to do. I do have a little bit more here to say. Bear with me. When we tell our boys at the first sign of crying, Come on, son, stiff upper lip. You don't need to cry over this. It's no big deal. Even after his mom passes away. See, something is wrong with that. There is a way to train it. The, one, other th one other thing. I'm going to conclude with this. And I'm going to call it the no homo reaction. We're all guilty. Well, I don't want to say all of us. Just about all of us men at some point have done something, and as soon as we did it, we said, hey, no homo. You guys are so silent on this one. Wow. We say something compassionate, even tender. We give a pause. It's a little awkward. And then we say, hey, no homo, right? We hug another guy. I love you, man. Oop, no homo. Really? I want you to think if someone who wrestles with homosexuality comes into our church and hears you saying that, they will be so offended. You mean to tell me that because I hug another guy, that's homosexual? Dude, you have no understanding about the struggle that I have. And he's probably coming to church or she because she's looking for something that will heal this hurt in their heart. And what do they hear? Oh, no homo. You, church, have no clue about my struggle. And they are offended, and they probably will leave immediately. Do you see the gravity of this? We're trying to reach a broken world, and we toss around words like, oh, no homo. I'm sorry. I realize that we joke about it, and we can laugh. I am guilty of that, church. I have done that. Maybe not in a while. But I have done that. And I'm sorry if I have ever, if you have ever heard those words, no homo, come out of my mouth. Because some guy wears pink, oh, that's gay. Really? Hmm. Okay, culture can define that pink sometimes is women and blue is sometimes guys. 
But you know what? There are plenty of secure enough men who wear pink in our generation, and we cannot say, because you like pink, you're gay. Again, someone struggling with that in the world, looking for answers to the church, and all they have to say is, you're wearing pink, you're gay? You have a man purse, you're gay? No. We're missing something here, church. We have bought into a lie somewhere along the way, and we are now speaking things that are highly offensive to the world, and we are now isolating and narrowing our ability to minister to the world. Let's not do that. It will also bring division in the body of Christ. So here's what I'm going to say. You may disagree with me on this, but for the sake of unity in the body of Christ, for the sake of reaching the lost, get rid of those accusations. Oh, that's gay because this guy rubbed up against my leg. We're both wearing shorts, you know, and so he rubbed up. Oh, that's gay. What? Where does this come from? It comes from a dysfunctional culture. And the church has bought into it. May Jesus heal us. That's why I say in, in many of us, we've stumbled into this. Can I be honest with you? At times it is hard for me to cry. And there are reasons for that. And I've mentioned them. But you're going to be strong. But you see, that was instilled in me as a kid. And, and now I'm prey to it. And I've asked God, deliver me from this. So I'm learning to be a crier. I'm learning when I watch a movie, it's okay for my family to look over and dad is just wiping his, his tears from his face. I try not to heave. Okay, maybe that's all right, but it is still embarrassing. Okay, I'm learning, but it's okay for me to cry in an emotional movie. And if you ever visit my home and we're going, I hope you see me cry. And I hope I see you cry too, guys. Cole, I love you because you are not afraid to cry in front of this church. And I've had people say, man, I really appreciate that about Cole. Things are, you're willing to let things touch you. David was willing to cry when his son Absalom raised his head up against him and tried to uh, remove his dad from kingship. David's men fought against Absalom's men and Absalom was killed. I'm not gonna get into the story. And David wept. And that was all right. Men, let's never be afraid to weep. And I'm just going to leave you with this, guys. Be careful with the phrase man card. He tried to steal my man card. Now, the concept of man card, and you can disagree with me in how it's used, I'm okay with that. It's just simply saying what you did tried to embarrass my masculinity, okay? However, the concept, because that's an idiom, the, the literal concept is impossible. If someone can actually steal your masculinity, your masculinity is so fragile. It can break at any moment, and God needs to heal that insecurity in your life. So just be careful in how you use that phrase. That's all I'm saying here. If the church fails to raise truly masculine men, it will fail in producing spiritually healthy men, healthy families, good leaders, and utterly fail in extending the kingdom of God. Are we men, are we making the gospel of the kingdom attractive? Can you stand with me? Thank you. I realize that I went way over time today. This has been something that has been stirring in my heart. The concept of masculinity is dear to my heart. You probably caught that today. What concerns me is this idea that we are in a culture and the church is still floundering in grasping what truly is masculine. And I realize I've touched the surface. Can you do me a favor? If you disagreed with what I said today, can you not stomp your feet on the way out? But can you come to me and talk with me? Because I scratched the surface. Maybe you misunderstood some things I said. But let's dialogue about this. The church needs to do that. Okay? We have hurt far too many members of the body of Christ, offended far too many 
people outside the church with this concept of toxic masculinity and our practice of it. Our local vertical is the word of God. May we never stray from that. Amen. Father, I just ask you that you would be very gracious with us because I realize, Lord, that even myself, we need healing from our upbringing. It's not right, but that's what culture, maybe my dad, did. And we wrestle with that. As dads, though, Father, as men, may we not make the same mistake. Help us find that local vertical. Help us find the truth of your word. And I just ask you, Lord, would you raise up in our midst such feminine women, such masculine men, secure in who we are in Christ, loving, pursuing you. And even if it's hard, pursuing what your word says that you have called us to as men and what you've called us to as women. And we'd be willing to lay down our offenses that the culture has taught us to have and we'd be willing to embrace the truth of your word because that can be hard. And I just ask you, Lord, help us as men, especially. We need to be setting the pace here and we are not. So God, would you heal us? Because very possibly every single man in this room to some degree needs that healing. I know I do. Just help us, Lord, that we make the gospel of your kingdom attractive in how we speak and how we live. So we humble ourselves before you. Would you do this work in our hearts, God, please. Let us wrestle with it. But let's be healed. In Jesus' name I pray.